Amen. Well, if you would open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21. I spent quite a bit of time debating about where to go on a Sunday morning message on Easter Sunday. It occurred to me that rather than revisiting what we just looked at a few weeks ago in the resurrection, or looking at the resurrection account as retold in the other gospel accounts, or the primary passages that speak of the value and significance of the resurrection, as I read through this remaining section of John, it occurred to me that this event that we're going to look at in the life of Peter is a very specific application of the victory that is ours in our redemption through our union with Jesus Christ. I don't know that we apply the truths of Scripture to our lives as consistently as we should. We might talk about them, we might pray them, but to live them out, to see them expressed to us through the pages of Scripture are incredibly important for us to be able to evaluate and to personalize for our own selves. So we come to another Easter celebration. In the world, Easter means very, very little. In fact, you go to the grocery stores or you go to the, super, to the stores in general, what you see about Easter is candy and bunnies and eggs and flowers and the hope of a warm weather coming very soon. There's not a lot in the stores today about the resurrection, about the empty tomb, about the significance of what Easter is really all about. For the Christian, Easter is about the redemption that comes from the cross, the victory that comes from the empty tomb. And although we know that to be true intellectually, I believe that we struggle to appropriate that truth in our lives. And I think this is exactly what we see expressed from Jesus to Peter as Peter deals with his denials and then Jesus' restoration of him. It occurs to me that every single person in the world is in need of redemption. There are no exceptions. There are no exclusions. It doesn't matter how many great-great-granddaddies you had that were pastors or how good of a life you lived. Every single person born into this world is in need of redemption. Romans 3.23 very clearly says that all have sinned, all, and have fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is perfection. It is to be without any fault, without any blemish, without any wrongdoing. And that just doesn't happen. Every single one of us is in need of redemption. The cross and the empty tomb make achieving God's glory possible through our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and the victory that is ours given to us through His empty tomb. Now, as we look in John, I believe that we'll see in this encounter with Peter, the blessing of redemption and how we will enjoy the ongoing victory in our life through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is a very interesting study all by himself. He is bold, he is brash, he's impulsive, and he's a very clear leader within the group of the twelve disciples. In fact, James and Peter or John are grouped together more than the twelve are in general. He also demonstrates the need for redemption in so many ways. Let's look a little bit as we reconstruct some of Peter's expressions given to us 
through the gospel. The first point we're going to look at is the challenge of spiritual distraction. After the transfiguration, where Jesus' true glory was partially revealed to Peter, James, and John, and after Jesus had been discussing with them His impending death, the disciples who have just seen this miraculous transfiguration where Jesus' face shone white like the sun and His clothing was white like the sun, as they were leaving from that experience, Luke records for us, that an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Can you imagine that? sitting around the table with Jesus or seeing such a miraculous event like the transfiguration and saying, boy, this is a good place to be. We ought to be here more often. And leaving from that place and beginning to debate amongst your group which of you is going to hold the most prominent position in the kingdom of God. They had seen Jesus' miracles. They were amazed at His teachings. They had seen His presence transformed before their very eyes. And yet their most immediate concern was over the position and the physical kingdom that they expected Jesus was going to inaugurate very, very soon. You see, our need for redemption is seen in our own spiritual distraction when we're not concerned about the kingdom of God, His plans and His purposes for us in serving Him. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some people who have read this account in Luke, who have heard what Luke has recorded in terms of the transfiguration, and Peter and the other disciples debating about who was going to be the greatest, and it probably wouldn't be much of a surprise that some people would wonder if Peter was really in fact saved. He seems to be so preoccupied with himself and with his rise to fame and fortune and popularity that maybe he really isn't even saved. You see, it's very easy for us to become spiritually distracted. We don't focus on the person of Christ. We don't focus on the purposes that God has for us in our journey with Him. We're so consumed with and preoccupied by our own lives, our own needs, our own desires, that we get distracted spiritually and we miss the ongoing work of redemption in our lives. Well, secondly, our need for redemption is realized and the reality of spiritual warfare. During the very first Lord's Supper, Jesus tried to prepare Peter by illuminating this spiritual battle to Peter. We read in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is preparing Peter for this spiritual attack that is going to be incredibly fierce in his life. That word sift means to attack. If you know anything about this era, a very agricultural society, where wheat was sifted from the shaft in a very violent shaking and banging and throwing of the wheat kernel, this is the idea that Peter is going to be subjected to at the hands of his enemy. Satan has demanded permission to sift you, to attack you, like we. He directs this 
warning directly to Peter, but it's phrased in the plural, meaning that it is appropriate to all of the disciples. Not only is Peter going to be specifically targeted, but all of the disciples are going to suffer spiritual attack. Jesus goes on to say that when you have turned again, meaning when you have repented and have been restored, you are going to strengthen your brothers. Peter was known as the prominent disciple in all of Jerusalem after the founding of the church, which is exactly the role that Peter fulfilled in this very command from the Lord. Now, our need for redemption is realized as we live our lives under constant spiritual attack. Spiritual attack is taking place in each and every one of our lives, each and every day, whether we recognize it or not. It might be through a physical challenge. It might be through a challenge in your job. It might be through circumstances that you have no control over. It might be things that will thwart you in trying to serve Him and live out the plans and purposes that He has for you. But you and I need to recognize that we are under a constant spiritual attack and a part of our ongoing redemption is responding to that attack in faith in compliance with a desire to serve the Lord no matter what it is we face in our lives. God desires to use us in building His kingdom and there is a very real spiritual battle taking place in an effort to prevent us from doing that very thing. We may be inactive by circumstances. We may be uninterested compared to the other things that I can do with my time. We may be indifferent to the plans that God has for our lives. And all of those fit under this category of spiritual attack. Our redemption needs to recognize that spiritual attack and fight back so that we can be and do what God has called us to do. Thirdly, our need for redemption is found in the evidence of spiritual pride. Now, again, this event is during the very first Lord's Supper when Jesus is preparing them for the very worst day of their lives, His departure, His leaving them alone. We read in Matthew 26, verses 31 to 35, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. What we see in Peter's life here is a very clear overestimation of his own personal strength, of his own determination, of his own resolve. Peter believed his commitment to Christ was unshakable and it could not be overcome by anyone or anything. This warning that Jesus gives is so ridiculous in Peter's mind that he declares that he would stand alone and die with Christ alone if that's what it came down to. Peter's spiritual pride screams of his need for continual redemption 
just as ours does. We must be very careful that we don't construct a spiritual persona with self-effort and self-reliance that is empowered by self-will because that kind of a life is certainly going to fail. Now, we may say, I don't believe that I have an overestimation of my own spiritual strength, but the question is really this. What kind of spiritual disciplines do we apply in our lives? Are we reading His Word every day, or are we fine without it? Do we live our lives in a constant attitude of submitted prayer, or are we doing okay without it? Are we determined to serve Him in every possible way that we can, or are we content with the way things are in the here and now. Well, we have to recognize that our ongoing need for redemption is rooted in the reality that you and I most likely possess some amount of spiritual pride which keeps us from giving our full self to the Lord. Number four, our need for redemption is seen in the result of spiritual laziness. Now, despite Jesus' warning of spiritual battle, and the prediction of spiritual failure, in the face of these challenges, Peter and the others didn't truly take this warning to heart. We read in Luke chapter 22, And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Peter and the others were so tired from their sorrow, they were so overwhelmed by the events of the evening that they failed to listen to the warning that Jesus gave to them. They failed to heed the command to pray and be spiritually prepared. And instead, they took a nap. They went to sleep. His prediction of death, the thought of being without Him, was so overwhelming that they couldn't possibly find the strength to pray. Now we have valid reasons for being tired, don't we? Incredibly long days of work, maybe very difficult and sleepless nights, maybe our hearts are filled with sorrow or disappointment, or we're overwhelmed with life circumstances, or we're discouraged and don't know how we're going to make it through another day. There are a limitless number of issues that can make for us so much tiredness, so much fatigue that we just can't find the time, the strength, or the energy to read and pray and commune with God. Well, as a part of our ongoing need for redemption, we must battle against this spiritual laziness and be as determined and and as intentional as we know to be to fight victoriously when our lives are going to come up against the inevitable spiritual battles in our life. Number five, the devastation of spiritual failure is an indication of our ongoing need for redemption. Now, while Jesus was standing trial before the religious authorities, we read these words in Matthew chapter 26. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. 
when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before a rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The very thing that Peter boldly declared he would never, ever do, he has now done in just a few short hours. He has denied knowing anything about Jesus, having any kind of affiliation with him. You have me mistaken for somebody else. I do not know him. The unthinkable has taken place in Peter's life. Thinking about the weeks and months preceding this disastrous failure, Peter was concerned about his position in the physical kingdom that Jesus was going to install. He ignored the warning of spiritual battle. He was prideful in his spiritual commitment. He was too tired to pray. And when time came to put up or to shut up, Peter failed and denied that he even knew who Jesus was. Now, Peter's life, I believe, is a snapshot of our very own. While the circumstances are quite different, the issues remain the same. Because we, like Peter, are deeply flawed by the presence of sin all around us, and because of the power of unconquered sin in our life, we have a need for ongoing redemption. Now, when I'm talking about the need for ongoing redemption, I'm not talking about continually being saved over and over and over again. I believe that redemption is the beginning point of our relationship with Christ, given to us in the gift of salvation by faith, but we continually live out this gift of redemption as we are brought along the journey, as we are sanctified, as we are made to look more and more like Christ, as we constantly challenge to not fall quite so short of the glory of God. What I believe Easter is about is simply this. Redemption has been provided, not just for our salvation, but for our ongoing need for cleansing because the ongoing stain of sin in our lives. Now, all of this brings us to the focal point in our passage today where we will find, I believe, the provision for our need for redemption and the distribution of amazing grace. Now, it's interesting that only John records this encounter. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. And so, as I mentioned earlier in our study of John, this event in particular answers what would be very unanswered questions in the lives of John's, of, of the gospel readers, what happened to Peter. He had done this unspeakable thing, and yet we hear about him later on in the book of Acts, preaching and teaching and doing all of these things. So what happened? Well, this explains to us what happened. So we're going to look at just a few verses this morning. John John 21, verses 15 through 17. So when they had finished breakfast... 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Well, verse 15 tells us that the group had finished breakfast. When they had finished eating, Jesus then has this not-so-private conversation with Peter. Some argue that this was a one-on-one conversation, but because verse 15 tells us that the group had finished eating, it stands to reason that this issue of restoration that Peter is going to experience is going to take place within the public group of the disciples who were gathered there. After all, Peter's declarations had been public within the group, and his failure was known to the entire group. And so here his restoration is going to be public as well. So when Jesus begins this dialogue with Peter, he addresses him as Simon, son of John. This is important. This is the same kind of greeting that Jesus gave to Peter the very first time that they met. This formal name, Simon, son of John, or the name Simon by itself, is an indication that Jesus is going to issue some kind of a rebuke when he's going to speak. Rather than calling him Peter, the name that he had given to him, after Peter's declaration of faith, he is now calling him Simon, son of John, which very likely captures Peter's attention in a very specific way. It's kind of like when your mother calls you by your full name, including the middle name. It kind of gets your attention and you go, "Uh uh-oh, I did something I wasn't supposed to do. So Jesus begins this conversation by capturing Peter's attention. Simon, son of John. Each of these questions, he's going to ask him three times, each of these questions has a response and a command attached to it. The command is going to apply very specifically to the apostolic ministry that Peter is going to begin in just a few short weeks. So the second part of verse 15 says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. So there's an interesting play on words here, and it centers around the word love. So the first question that Jesus asks of Peter is very simply this, do you love me most? When he says this, he says, do you love me more than these? And there's a lot of debate about what the these is referring to. So some believe that the the these means do you love me more than these men love me. Some believe that it might mean do you love me more than you love these men Or do you love me more than you love these things? After all, they had been fishing, and all the fishing gear was likely scattered along the shore. What Jesus is specifically asking isn't as important as what Jesus is asking him as expressed in the word used for love. The word love here is obviously the word agape, agapeo, which is divine love. It is the highest form of love. It is a love of choice. 
It is the love of the will, and it is the love that comes from great intentionality. This is the way that God loves us. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The most popular verse in all of the Bible is speaking to us about the intentional love of God, this divine love. So this divine love is the way that we are to love God. It is our choice to love Him with the highest form of love. After all, that's Jesus' first commandment, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. So this is what Jesus is asking Peter Do you love me the most? Peter gives a response. He says, you know I love you. Now the word that is used here in Peter's response for love is the word phileo. The word phileo means I have a strong affection for you. The word phileo ought to be familiar to us since we live so close to Philadelphia. The word Philadelphia is rooted in the word phileo. And this is why Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. Not because there isn't any crime in Philadelphia, but because the root word comes from what this means. It means a brotherly love. Now, the word in the Greek, phileo, is often specifically translated, I am fond of you. So Jesus asks Peter, do you love me with the divine love, the highest form of love? And Peter answers, yes, Jesus, I am quite fond of you. Now, it's significant that he loves him, but it falls very, very short of this divine love that Jesus has asked Peter of. Peter, most assuredly, is very aware of his his denials, of his failures, of the inaccuracy of his claims. It confirms a lesser love than what Jesus had asked him. Do you love me? Most And Peter says, I love you, but not the way you love me. The command here is to tend my lambs. That word tend means to pasture. You take your lambs out to pasture and you feed them. You take care of them. You provide for them. And it's in the present tense, meaning that this is a continual process. Peter is to tend Jesus' lambs in a continual way. Notice here that Jesus says, to tend my lambs, not your lambs. They don't belong to you. They belong to me. So in this first question, response, and command, it is the first affirmation of Peter's restoration of his sin, his failure, his weakness, the overestimation that he had applied to himself did not disqualify him from his position and holding down an apostolic ministry in the spiritual kingdom that Jesus had come to inaugurate. So Peter was in need of redemption, and Jesus was providing it in this first phase of restoration. So the second question that we see here is in verse 16. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. So the second question is very simply this. Do you love me first? 
His question is like the first, but omits the phrase, more than these. And again, Jesus used the word, uses the word agapao, meaning this divine love, this highest form of love. And again, Peter's response is very simply, you know that I love you. It's again, the I am very fond of you. Not the I love you with a divine love. And the command here is to shepherd my sheep. So not only is he to tend the lambs, the little ones, but he is to give shepherding over the flock, over the sheep that belong to Jesus. Again, it is shepherd my sheep. It's not yours. They don't belong to you. They're mine. And I want you to take care of my sheep. And so this is now the second affirmation of Peter's restoration. And that brings us to the third question that Jesus asks, which is in verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So the third question is very simple. Do you love me? And in this exchange, unlike the first two times, Jesus asks Peter, do you phileo love me? Are you very fond of me? Peter is grieved because Jesus has asked him the third time the same question. And I believe that it has not yet dawned on Peter what Jesus is actually doing. For as many times as Peter denied him, Jesus is giving to him a portion of this restoration, so that when it's over with, it is deemed complete. Peter's grieved. He's perhaps startled that Jesus is questioning his love. Even the declaration of strong love, strong affection, being fond of. The response is, you know that I love you. And Peter calls upon the omniscience of Christ in this affirmation, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart apart from the words that I say. You know that I love you. He declares this knowing to be experientially because he calls upon the omniscience of God. Not what he knows intellectually. Not what he knows just by hearing the words stated back. But because Jesus knows in his omniscient presence exactly where Peter's heart is. So the command here is to tend my sheep. It is to give care to my sheep, not your sheep. They don't belong to you. And in this, Peter's restoration is complete. Peter's three denials have been matched with three commands from the Lord to complete his divine calling to shepherd God's people. Is it any surprise that when we read the epistle of First Peter that we would read these words in chapter 5. Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. Peter heard very, very clearly what Jesus has said to him, and I believe that Peter successfully lived out that command 
as he was the primary elder at the church in Jerusalem, as he tended to and gave care over the flock that God had given to him. So Peter's three denials of Jesus were addressed in his three affirmations of loving Jesus. And this is why this is important for us. You see, our redemption is completed. We get saved once. We don't have to come back and get saved again when we disastrously fail. Our salvation is promised to us for all of eternity. But you know, we need to experience the ongoing work of redemption as we come to Him when we fail, as we hear His declaration of commitment to us through the inner working of the Holy Spirit who affirms that we are the children of God. Where Jesus said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Have you ever wondered, how often can God forgive me of the same sin? How often can I do the same kinds of things, and yet God still forgives me? Well, it's because the work of redemption is completed while it's still being worked out in our lives as we submit ourselves to His plans and purposes, as we come to Him submissively, acknowledging our failures and resting under the love and grace and mercy of forgiveness that is expressed to us on the cross and the ultimate victory of that in the empty tomb. Would you pray with me, please? Father, how I give you thanks for the incredible work of the cross, the victory over sin, the conquering of sin and death through the empty tomb, this ongoing commitment to work out our redemption in such a way that we never have to wonder about your love or your mercy or your forgiveness for us, that it extends from eternity past all the way into eternity in the future. Father, how much we thank you how deeply we love you for this gift that you've given to us. I pray that when we look at the cross, that we will see the true person of Christ, his love, that we will see the, the perfect Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world, that we would see the love that extends from the heavens to the earth, from eternity past into eternity future. And that we would marvel and wonder and just in awe of what you've done for us. Father, we thank you for loving us the way you do. May you find in us a desire that matches your commitment to give to us the full measure of your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to him.